Amen. And thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity. Thank you for allowing God to use you in that way. Well, it is a blessing to be able to celebrate Christmas with you, and we will be working through various passages of Scripture throughout this Christmas season. I want to reread what Tim read. Thank you for doing that for us earlier. That comes from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Uh, So I'm going to invite you, if you would, to turn to this particular passage. I will tell you that the Christmas story is recorded in multiple places. You will find that most of what we will use over the next several weeks will come from Luke chapter 2. It is the more traditional version that is often used with Christmas. But I wanted to begin here because of the fact that within this passage, we see an incredible contrast. You will notice as we look... uh, Jesus himself experiences something that is brand new, which is really hard to imagine because he created everything. But when you think about his shift from being in the glory of heaven to now coming and being born in a dirty, filthy manger, what an incredible contrast he experienced. This is what it says in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. As we look at this story, we see the word becoming flesh. Psalm chapter 136 verse 1 declares that we ought to Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. As we come out of thanksgiving and we enter into this Christmas season, we begin with a call to give thanks, to thank God specifically for his goodness. Did you know that his goodness has really never been up for debate? I know there are times that we have tried to debate God's goodness because something may not go the way we planned. That's what we talked about last week. Sometimes we almost depict God's goodness as being determined by our current circumstances. If everything's going good, then God must be good. If everything is being provided for us in the way we want it to be provided, then God must be good. But the moment something happens that is out of our plan or our desire, now God's goodness is debatable. But that is not true. You see, regardless of your circumstances, God's goodness has already been settled. 
He is always going to be good. And therefore, the psalmist writes that we should give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Do you know the psalmist had experienced pain and sorrow and hardship in his life? Some of it were things that he probably brought on himself because, well, he was human. He's much like you and I. And many, many of the pains and the struggles that we have faced have been because of our own poor choices. But the fact is, we also live in a fallen world. And some of them were not because of things that the psalmist did. Some of them were simply because he lived in a fallen world. And sometimes bad things happen to even good people. But God's goodness remains true. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. But then it goes on and it makes a declaration regarding God's character and how he feels about humanity. It says his love endures forever. You know, forever is a big word. It is an absolute word like never and always. Forever indicates that there is no exception. There has never been a time, in other words, that God's love did not exist. It is forever. There's never been a time that God's love was not being extended to humanity. And there never will be. What that means is, even before Abraham chose to obey God's call to go to a particular place, that God would show him God loved him. Before obedience, God loved him. That means that even when the Israelites rebelled against God's law, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, when Jonah disobediently ran away from God's call, when David committed adultery and even murder, and when Aaron made a golden calf, an image to be worshipped by God's people, God's love was still being extended to these individuals. In fact, let's take it a step further by saying that even before Nineveh repented, while they were in the midst of their sin, even in the idolatry of the Canaanites, and even as the Babylonians stood opposed to the people of Israel, God's love was being extended to them. I want you to catch the shift that just took place. You see, I think for, for many of us, we understand God's love as being available to God's chosen people. We think of the Israelites. God certainly loved them. He blessed them over and over again. And we see where he was faithful to them, even at times where they were unfaithful to him. But do you know that God's love was being extended outside of the Israelite family? The Babylonians were an ungodly group of people who stood opposed to the people of God often. Yet God's love was continually being extended to them. The Canaanites, we look at the things that took place, the immorality, the idolatry that took place. Unfortunately, there were horrible things that were occurring. Yet God still loved them in spite of those things. I wonder how many times God offered his grace to them prior to the Israelites coming in and taking possession of that land. I have no idea. But I know that God's love is forever. 
I know that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God still loved them in spite of that. In fact, listen to the way Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39 is worded in the New Living Translation. We're talking about the love of God that has no boundary, has no limit. It is not based on our perception of what love is. Romans 8, verse 35 through 39 says this, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The point of, of this is that his love is not conditional on anything. If good happens, God loves you. If bad happens, God loves you. If you have disobeyed, God loves you. If you have done everything that God has called you to do, God loves you. God's love does not change. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think sometimes when we look at the Christmas season, we have this image of what Christmas is about. We picture three generations of family gathered around a table and a big fat turkey and ham and all kinds of fixings all around it. And everybody's laughing and just enjoying a great time with each other. You look out the window and the snow is falling lightly and there's a Christmas tree that's all lit up and everybody's getting along and we think that's what love is about family reminiscing and enjoying each other's company. But do you know that it's very rare that that image actually comes true? A couple reasons for that. First of all, I've yet to find a perfect family. I've looked really hard. I have yet to find a perfect family. And sometimes the reason we don't get together more often than around the holidays is because we really don't get along with each other when we are together. Too many of us, it is a burden to come together because you know somebody's going to bring up something that they're not supposed to talk about. Someone's going to talk about South Carolina football. Someone's going to talk about Clemson football. Someone's going to talk about politics. Ooh, hold on a second. Someone's going to talk about religion. There are all these things that we're not supposed to talk about, but the moment that those things come up, all of a sudden we want to fight with each other. Here's another thing. Sometimes someone wants to bring up the past. Do you remember when we were kids and you did that? I didn't do that. The next thing you know, they're fighting with each other. You know, for many of us, we have this image of what Christmas is supposed to be about. But the truth is, it was never about family, 
It was never about reminiscing. It was always about Jesus Christ, the Savior coming for us. Again, is family a bad thing? Absolutely not. Is reminiscing a bad thing? Absolutely not. However, recognize that those are things that are secondary to what Christmas is about. We are here because of the Savior of the world coming for us. Jesus Christ himself became an incredible example of love. And what he did was he made love real for you and for me. That being said... How do you truly know what love is without being able to see it firsthand? You don't. When Jesus came into the world, he came as the living embodiment of God's love. And over the course of about 33 years, Jesus would display his love for humanity in different ways. We know that he did great things. He wowed them with his ability to speak, his ability to heal, his ability to even raise people from the dead. We know that he displayed incredible love to those who were broken. A woman who had been caught in adultery, Jesus could have com condemned her because of her choices, but instead he lifted her up and he restored her, giving her hope even a hope of transformation. He showed incredible love. He had a woman who had a continuous issue of blood. God allowed her to be healed. And in front of everybody, she was made clean. You have lepers who could not even come into the public because of the fact that they were unclean. Yet Jesus not only told them to go and cleanse themselves, but at times we see Jesus going and even touching the leper. Jesus not only healed them in that moment, but he gave them value. Jesus displayed incredible love to the people around him. And as he did, he showed us what love would truly be about. Of course, it would seem that Few people recognized his actions as being the love of God. Instead, he was met by many with skepticism, with rejection, with fear, and even selfishness. Yet Jesus still loved those individuals. Imagine the Pharisees as they watched Jesus touch the leper. Imagine the Pharisees as they watched Jesus sit down with that tax collector and all of his buddies. And they looked, and they did not see the love of God, but they saw the filth of sin. And they questioned how this could ever be viewed as the love of God. Yet truly, Jesus still loved them. Well, as Jesus extends his love, what he's really doing is inviting others to enter into a relationship with the very creator of heaven and earth. And although many would reject this offer, there would be many who would accept his invitation to become children of God. Notice that he wasn't inviting them into some burdensome relationship, but rather into a privileged relationship. It is a relationship that brings a sense of belonging, a promise of reward or an inheritance of a new and better identity. It's almost like you're opening up your home to a stranger. 
You invite him or her in, but you keep them basically under your watch. You keep an eye on them constantly. You wouldn't want them to go through your more intimate rooms. Maybe you allow them in your living room, in your dining room. You, you make sure they know where the bathroom is when they get there. But the first thing you do is you make sure you've closed off other doors to the house. I don't know if it's like my house. Maybe it's because my kids' rooms aren't as clean as what they're supposed to be. But we close off certain doors because we don't want everybody to see everything that goes on in the house. So we allow them to see certain segments of the house. We want you to be here. Just we don't want you to go too deep into this. In fact, there are certain rooms that only the family can enter into. You might give them a tour. You just tell them behind that door is my kid's room. But they'll never see what's behind that door. Or maybe for you it's a closet where you've stuffed everything just to make the house look tidy. And if you open that door, you're afraid everything's going to fall out on top of them. But for whatever reason, there are certain sections of the house that are off limits. Because those are reserved for those who are in the family. The thing is, when Jesus Christ invites us into relationship with him, Nothing is off limits. He invites us into a right relationship with him. He says, you are able to go wherever within this. Now, I will say this. Some of us have mistaken his openness in love as almost a permissiveness to sin. But the truth is, as God invites us into this love relationship, what he does is he invites us to be changed. One of the important parts about this passage, understand that in what Jesus does, it begins with an impossible act. The word becoming flesh. Jesus is the word. He spoke creation into being. He spoke life into creation itself. Out of nothing, God created everything. And he would be the light that would shine into the darkness of our world and of our souls. Can you imagine the beauty which Jesus had experienced prior to his experience as a human being? Seated on the throne of God. He was surrounded by angels and every good thing imaginable. More than that, he was continually in the presence of his heavenly father. Perfection surrounded by perfection. Surely, Jesus could never give up such beauty. Surely, he would never choose to be born in the filth and the stench of a manger where animals have lived and slept and done less than attractive things. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Sure, he would still be perfect, but he would choose to no longer be surrounded by perfection. Sure, the Father was still available to him. In fact, often Jesus would break away from everyone else just to commune with he and the Father. But he would no longer be seated on his throne. He knew there would come a time 
that even the father would turn his back on Jesus. Not because the father was betraying him, but rather as he watched Jesus take the weight of the sin of this world upon himself. Darkness would come over the cross as the father turned his back. And Jesus would declare, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sure, this would be a temporary role as Jesus knew that he would eventually be seated again on his throne where he where we will all one day witness him. But don't lose sight of the significance of John chapter 1, verse 14. It says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This was an incredible act of sacrifice. You see, the moment that the word became flesh, Jesus invited all the experiences of humanity to come upon himself. That means sorrow, pain, heartbreak, and even death. I don't know about you, but I try to avoid those things as much as I can. Yet Jesus invited those things upon himself. You see, Jesus knew that when the word became flesh, that even that flesh would eventually have to die. Jesus had existed since even before the creation of the world, yet he had never experienced death firsthand. Yet he was inviting this upon himself. Why? It's because of the love that he had for humanity. You see, Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 tells us that nothing impure will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as, as we read that, what that tells us is there is never an opportunity for us to be made right with God himself because all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us have committed sin. The wages of sin is death. We would never, ever be able to have true communion again with our God unless there was a suitable sacrifice to pay the price for our sin. Back at the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, the very moment that they sinned, they realized something was wrong, and they heard God approaching in the garden, and they tried to cover their shameful nakedness with fig leaves, only to have God eventually have to take the skin of an animal to cover their shameful nakedness. You see, the thing is, that animal didn't give up his skin without a cost. That animal had to shed his blood for that to take place. From the very first sin, the shedding of blood was required to cover up for sin. In many ways, this was a foreshadowing of what would take place. You see, Jesus Christ would be the wage for our sin. The wage of sin is death. He would pay the price for you and for me because he would allow his blood to be shed so that we could be forgiven. What Jesus did in that moment was 
he made it possible for us to spend eternity with him and our Heavenly Father. You want to know why he did that? Because he loved you. It's because he looked upon that sin and he looked upon that separation. He said, I am not okay with this. So I will do whatever it takes to make things right between God and humanity. I don't know about you, but it's rare that I'll see that kind of love. At least it's rare that I've seen it already. You might say that a parent would do that sort of thing for their child. You know, if you, if you saw your child going through something horrible, you might pray, Lord, I'd be willing to take my child's place so that they could still be healthy and whole, that they might live. And you probably mean what you say. There are a few, even in law enforcement or as firefighters, who would put themselves in harm's way, maybe even soldiers who would put themselves in harm's way knowing that what they're doing is giving their own lives or making their own lives available so that others might live. There are few in this world who would do such a thing. But there is only one who could do it and truly deliver all of humanity. And that one is Jesus Christ. He did not do so because he was obeying the Father. He did so because he loved humanity. As we go through this Christmas season, I want to challenge you to recognize exactly how much love God has extended to you and me already. This passage that we read talks about a grace that is in place of grace. Let me reread verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Did you know that God's grace has been extended throughout all of history? Sometimes we look at the Old and the New Testament as being very different. The New Testament is all about grace. The Old Testament is about the law because Moses gives the law and there is this expectation that you will live according to the law. But did you know that grace was given even before Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins? I gave you some examples earlier. Nineveh. Nineveh was an ungodly nation, and God gave them the opportunity to be restored, to be redeemed. That's grace. We have individuals like David who committed adultery and even committed murder, yet he's still referred to as a man after God's own heart. That's grace. There is grace all throughout the Old Testament as well. But what happens in Jesus Christ is we receive grace in place of grace already given. It's almost as if there is, to an extent, the grace is being expanded far beyond what anybody ever expected. Imagine this, a grace that gives you not only the forgiveness of sins once you die, but a grace that gives you the opportunity to be transformed in your life today. That is the kind of grace that Jesus Christ offers to us. That's why the Apostle Paul asked the question, Shall I continue in sin so that grace might abound even more? And then he says, Absolutely not. No way. Because the grace you have received does not permit you to simply continue in that sin, but that grace gives you the opportunity to be pulled out of it. So you no longer have to live the way you used to live. 
I was reading an article this week, and it was talking specifically about the grace that God gives and the love that he offers to us. And it was talking about the fact that in our culture today, we have mistaken grace and love as something that is all accepting and all permitting. You condone the acts of an individual simply because of the fact that you don't want to offend them because you love them too much to offend. But do you know that Jesus Christ himself offended? Do you know that Jesus Christ called people out for their sin? I gave you the example earlier of the woman who had been caught in adultery. And as he restores her, he basically gets up and he, he says to her, where are those that condemn you? And by this time in the story, everybody else has left. All the accusers have gone home. Jesus has called them out on their own sin. They've walked away and it's just he and her standing together. Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? She says, there are none. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Understand, that is an incredibly gracious statement. In their culture, according to the law, she deserved to die. She had committed adultery. According to the law, she should be stoned to death. That's what these men were wanting to see happen when they brought her before Jesus in the first place. So for him to say, neither do I condemn you, that is incredible grace. But here's where the grace on top of grace that is already given shows up. He says, now you go and sin no more. The grace was already there. I will not hold you accountable for what's been done in the past. But here's the incredible part. I'm going to set you free. You no longer have to live the way you did before. Now, I don't know what would happen in her life beyond this. There's speculation as to who this woman would be. The assumption is that this woman is transformed by her grace on top of grace, which she received. I kind of picture her like the Old Testament Rahab, truthfully. We look at Rahab. She was a prostitute in Jericho who delivered a couple of spies so that they would not be killed. As her reward, she and her entire family are spared when the Israelites come into Jericho and destroy everything else and kill everyone else. Rahab is delivered. But never again would she be viewed as a prostitute. Instead, she would become a part of the people of Israel, so much so that when you look at the genealogy of Christ, you find her mentioned as one of Jesus's great, 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 great grandparents. Here's the point. Grace on top of grace that is already given takes us beyond just saying, I forgive you but I also release you. God never intended for his people to continue in the sin that they had before, but he intended for them to be set free. That is an incredible grace on top of grace. What Jesus did by coming as a sacrifice for you and for me was he made salvation and redemption possible, but he also gave us the opportunity to be set free and made whole. 